we're at a pool today, the Pool of Bethesda. Some versions say Bethzatha, which is probably more te technically accurate. Our encounter with Jesus today, as so many are, is centered around another healing. Uh, we looked at that. Of course, we had a healing last week with the paralytic. And over the course of these weeks, we'll probably have another 10 weeks of encounters with Jesus. Many of them will be around healing. Not all of them. Many of them will, like today. And as we go through this story, the note I want to note at the beginning, last week we talked about the paralytic. There was the forgiveness and the spiritual truth. And then the healing came later to reinforce the spiritual truth. Here it is reversed. And, and this is the interesting, one of the interesting things about Jesus' encounters with people. Sometimes the benevolence, we might say, comes first and then the teaching. And sometimes the teaching comes first and then the benevolence and the power to reinforce the teaching. In this case, we're having the healing first. Uh, John chapter 5, 1 through 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and, after, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, that's what the ESV has, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, a multitude of individuals lay, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I want to begin with a note on the text. Uh, you might notice, if you're following along in your Bible, a, a rather large difference. Either you maybe have brackets, maybe you have a whole verse. I don't usually include the verse numbers on the screen because I don't like the verse numbers. Here it is particularly instructive. We have verse 3 and then verse 5. There, there's just no verse 4 in the ESV. Uh, the NRSV also doesn't have verse 4. The New American Standard, I think, has it in brackets. I was talking to some people about it earlier today. Some versions of the NIV have it in brackets, depending on the translation date that you have. Uh, verse 4 is just missing in a lot of Bibles. Why is that? If you include verse 4, this is how it reads in the New King James. Uh, beginning in verse 2, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man had been there uh, who had an infirmity 38 years. Uh, many of the newer translations, not all of them, most of the newer translations, again, depending on your translation date, you can see this in the NIV. The 1980s version of the NIV has it. The newer versions of the NIV, I think in 2010 onward, do not have it. And also, if you're looking at the Greek text, the published Greek text, Nestle, Nestle Allen, uh, NA28 is, I think, the newest version, also does not have this verse. It has it in a footnote at the bottom. It's not particularly relevant to the lesson of the story. I want to address it before we begin because it's such a glaring, overt thing in the text. It's an important study of translation work. And there's three reasons, basically, it is excluded in more modern translations. The oldest manuscripts, including the oldest ones that are the most complete, do not have the verse. They just don't have them. It is a, a rel relatively late edition in the manuscript evidence, several hundred years after the fact. The later manuscripts that do include it have a lot more variation overall, not just in this spot, but a lot of variation overall in the various uh, manuscripts that we have in the later versions that include this verse. And the versions that include this verse, many of them themselves include an asterisk or a bracket or a margin note to say, hey, this was probably added later on. And there's a reason why this, ver this verse, I think, was added later on. And we'll see it as we go through the text. The information in the verse can be inferred. It is added, I think, as a clarifying note 
Because if you keep reading in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Sir, do you want to, or do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going in, another steps down before me. If you don't have verse 4, which again, the earliest manuscripts do not, the question becomes, why would it matter that he can't get into the water when it's stirred up? Why, is, why does he care about that? If that, the verse 4, of course, clarifies that. Regardless of the fact of the angel's presence, and I'm going to be clear about this, I very much doubt that the angel actually did this. The people believed that something significant happened when the water was stirred up. You can infer that just from verse 6 and 7, right? That they think something important is happening in the stirring of the water. And it's probable that somebody added later, verse 4, this is why they thought that. This is why he was so concerned about the stirring up of the water. It can be inferred either way. And the point of the story, again, this is not really relevant to the point of the story, other than this guy, his situation is hopeless. That's the main point of all that we've been talking about up until now. This guy's been there 38 years. He's invalid. He can't get there. And any hope that he has, other people who are there that have infirmities and ailments, they have hope. Somebody helps them. They have somebody to help them out in some way. This guy has nothing. He's stuck there, cannot get the help that he needs. He is hopeless. That's the main thing I want to take from these first seven verses. And Jesus' question is a little bit ridiculous. Do you want to be healed? Well, yeah, of course I do. Of course I want to be healed. Well, I'm sitting here. I'm by this pool. People think that this pool is, is, is supernatural. Yeah, I want to be healed, Jesus. Why does he even ask the question? I think that's an interesting question that he asks. John 5, 8, 9. We keep reading, and of course we see the actual miracle here. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. And in the larger context of the Gospels, it doesn't seem particularly noteworthy, right? This is the thing that Jesus did on numerous occasions. He heals the guy, just like he did with the paralytic last week. I want to note, however, a larger question. That in the context of this story has a special emphasis... Healing of the paralytic in, in the story we read last week, there was, of course, the, this text says the power of the Lord was with him to heal. You get a, the sense in a lot of the stories that people are bringing many to be healed and they're, they're bringing them into the crowds and the multitudes, wherever he's traveling. Here, there is an interesting context that Jesus has gone to a place that in their culture, in their way of thinking, this is a place to go if you need healing, right? You've got the stirring up of the water. Again, I, I don't necessarily think that was actually happening, but that's what they believed. Anyone who's there needs healed. That's the point of being there. That's the point of this pool. You need to be there if you want to be healed. And we've already seen in the text, verse 3, there's a lot of invalids, a lot of people who are blind or lame. That is, they have some debilitating injury or illness that they cannot move, they cannot do what they need to do. And the question that is inherent in the text, in this story in particular, unlike the other times when Jesus heals, people bring him all sorts of people to be healed, why didn't Jesus heal all of them? We already know there's a bunch of people around that need to be healed. He's at the place where people go if they need healing. Why pick this dude as opposed to all of the other people there that need to be healed? There's a broader point that the life, work, and priorities of Jesus sheds light on, why not fix everything? He encounters so many people in his life, so many people that he has the power to fix their lives. 
He just does. We, we understand that because of his power. We might even move this one level back. Why did God introduce suffering into the world at all? Right? I mean, in the beginning, we know this is a response to sin in the garden. In the garden, there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no nothing. Of course, Adam and Eve, they sin, and they're cast out of the garden. And of course, the punishment from God, there's going to be suffering now. To the woman, pain and childbearing, the idea of the antagonistic relationship between men and women. To the man, you're going to have to work now, and eventually you're going to die. The introduction of suffering back in the garden as a response to sin, yet God does have the power right now to heal all people. We have a number of people in our assembly, in our family, who have a variety of varying degrees of horrible illnesses. We can think about those with cancer, think about those with heart disease, think whatever you want to put in there. There's so many people that we know, and yes, we can be honest about this, God could heal them all. It's within his power. Just like Jesus could have healed them all. At this pool, at this moment, could have done that. Jesus teaching after the healing, which we'll end with as we get, go through the story, emphasizes that Jesus, as God's agent on earth, operates the way the Father does. He does. And he's, he's going to say this more explicitly as we go through. And so when we think about this question, why not heal everyone, the question of Jesus is the same as the question of the Father. Jesus could have healed all the people at the pool. God could heal everyone on earth as we speak right now. Why doesn't he? There are answers, but they are not necessarily comfortable or pleasant answers. We're going to briefly address them. I'm going to, I, we have a couple of verses I want to look at. But I want to offer a mid-sermon invitation here that if you struggle with this question, because a lot of people do, if you struggle with this question, I cannot answer it in two minutes in a sermon. I'm going to give some answers, but come talk to somebody if you have struggles with this question. And we can dig deeper. There's a lot of things we can talk about that I don't have the scope of in a 25-minute sermon. Please, please, let's study it together if this is something you struggle with. Because I know that this is something that many people have doubts about. Let's talk about it. Now, a couple of verses to give us sort of a broad overview of this. Acts 17, 26. He made from one man, this is of course God, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. One of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons that God does not just heal everyone is he wants us to seek him. And one of the main impetuses for us to seek him is suffering. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's the main impetus for people to seek God is suffering. And he wants each of us that perhaps we would feel our way toward him and find him. I like the way that he's, I don't like it, but it's, I think, powerful. The way of feeling their way toward him and finding him like a person stumbling in the dark, like someone who's blind, who is just sort of crawling on their hands and knees, trying to find some solution, some answer, as I imagine people did at that very pool. The blind who could hear that people were that water was agitated, people were getting involved, and, and they're feeling their way towards the pool, I need to get in. 
That's what we all do with God. We're feeling our way toward him blindly, hoping to find him. But he's not far from each of us. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three times, of course, Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh here. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why doesn't God heal everyone? Number one, because he wants us to seek him. Number two, because in weakness, his power is perfected. And we all know people in this family whose faith has shined most brightly because of their faith in times of suffering. The power of Christ perfected in the weakness of humanity. We all know people like that who have been beacons of faithfulness and steadfastness because they needed help. They needed God's help. Now, as we return to the encounter with Jesus, as they so often do, so maddeningly, people react exactly the wrong way to this healing. John 5, verse 9. That day was the Sabbath. And we're going to see a lot of conflicts about the Sabbath with Jesus. This is just one of them. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man, uh, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, for there was a crowd in the place. Now, you can kind of picture this in your mind. They're all sitting around the pool. A lot of these people who have various ailments and difficulties and they're invalids in the ESV. Big, uh, big thing happens, the water stirs up, people are rushing towards the pool, there's a, a crowd, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to heal this guy. And then there's a, a bunch of people there, and he just sort of heals that guy and, and goes away. So he doesn't even have any teaching, doesn't have anyone, there's, there's no instruction, there's no sort of identifying mark of Jesus. He's just this guy appears, he heals me, he walks away, and the guy does so. Now, the point, of course, that the, the man is making, the guy told me to take up my bed and walk, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take up my bed. I'm not going to leave it behind me. The guy told me to do this. What if I leave my bed behind me and the healing goes away? What if this is part of the healing? I'm going to do this thing because this guy told me to do it. How petty do you have to be to focus on the perceived infraction rather than the miracle that's just occurred? This guy who has been lame for 38 years is walking. And what are you going to focus on? Hey, don't take up, don't pick up your bed. That's, that's the thing you're taking away from this story? That's the thing you're taking away from this event? The pettiness and the distraction of earthly tradition, their particular interpretation. Yet I fear that this is what we do. We stoop to this level of pettiness and tradition. God is doing all sorts of amazing things around us all the time in our lives and the lives of those we love. We don't see the amazing thing that's happened because we're so concerned about a particular way of thinking about truth that is very narrow and distracting. This is a danger for all of us. And it might be interesting, of course, as we've made this point over and over, that Jesus doesn't teach in conjunction with this miracle. We've talked about this at length already. 
that the miracle served to reinforce the teaching. Here, it is reversed. Because what does Jesus do afterward? John 5, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. And I, I don't know. I kind of wish we, again, we had the inflection of Jesus. Is he, is he jovial? Is he, is he more serious? Like, I don't know. I wish I knew. See, you're well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Kind of a threat. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why they were uh, persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, healing a man miraculously who had been lame and all they can think about, not the awesome power, you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath, Jesus. How dare you? How dare you demonstrate this awesome, miraculous power of God on the inappropriate day? But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Once again, Jesus was not content to let the miracle pass without some instruction, and some might even say a threat. Ah, you've been healed. Great for you. How about you stop sinning or else? There's an or else here, right? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I don't know if the guy, again, you think about the interpretation of the guy. I'm sure his first interpretation is, this man healed me. He tells me not to sin. If I keep sinning, then he'll take away the healing. Or maybe I'll end up in a worse physical spot. He'll take away the healing and I'll be blind. Or he'll take away the healing and I'll be deaf. I don't know what he's thinking, but I imagine he's thinking along physical lines. We, I think, would make the interpretation that he, when he talks about something worse, he's talking about spiritual destruction, right? Not physical, not that he'll be lame again, but that the worst thing that's coming is eternal, not this temporary physical condition. And so in all these encounters, I hope we're, we're seeing a consistent version of Jesus' priorities emerging. The way that he interacts with people. The idea that Jesus is this no-strings-attached healer is a mere shadow of the real picture. He healed people, and he loved people, and he was moved by their suffering. But we have to be clear about this. His aim was not the alleviation of physical suffering, which we see in the question, why not heal everyone? If his goal was the alleviation of physical suffering, he could have waved his hand and healed everyone at once. Wouldn't have been hard. His aim was deeper and more long-lasting than physical comfort. Yet there is also a truth, I think, that emerges out of this, that many people will not care about spiritual truth as long as their lives are overshadowed by some suffering. We understand this, I think, in this tension in the life of Jesus, that there's a lot of people who needed the miracle to hear the spiritual truth. A lot of people who needed the benevolence to be willing to accept the challenge. The challenge in these verses... See her well, sin no more. But he would not have heard the sin no more without the see you are well. As I think many people today are the same. We, like Jesus, then have a difficult task to balance the need for material benevolence. Now we're not going to be healing anybody miraculously, but material benevolence, helping people in their lives with a more important purpose. John 5 verse 19 Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the Father doing. And what does he see the Father doing? Not healing everyone, but still providing compassion and benevolence and blessing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will, we will greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Again, why doesn't Jesus heal all the people? Same reason, same thing as asking, why doesn't God heal everyone? But we can't use, and I want to make this point very strongly. Don't use this teaching as an excuse not to help people. You could go the wrong way with this. Well, Jesus didn't help everybody, so I don't need to help everybody. God sees a bigger picture than we do. We are only presented with what's in front of us. And what's in front of us, if there's people that need help, don't use this as an excuse not to help people. I want to be very strong about that. That we can't use this as the idea, well, I don't need to help everybody that I can. That's baloney. You have a responsibility to help people. God, of course, has all infinite omniscience and understands when to help and when not. We don't have that. Our task, our responsibility, is to do the best we can in each situation we find ourselves. But that just as there is something greater in store with Jesus, right, this teaching that he has, the sin no more, there is a greater act of healing in store for the world. And the question, why doesn't God heal everyone? The answer, he will. That's going to happen. Not yet. But greater works than these will he show. John 5, verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. We talked about this six weeks ago in our study on the Christian fundamentals. So that all may honor the Son just as they may honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. God will eventually heal not everyone, but everyone who believes. Why did it matter so much that Jesus accompanied the miracles with teaching? Because it was the teaching that was intended to solve the eternal problem. The healing solved the problem of this life, 60 years at most, 80 years at most. The teaching was the thing that had a chance to solve the actual problem. The actual problem not being that you're lame or blind or deaf. The actual problem being that you are eternally separated from God. And healing your lameness is not going to fix that. Healing your blindness, not going to fix that. Teaching you what is true has a chance to fix that. John 5, 14, we'll end with this verse. The instruction of Jesus, the challenge of Jesus... Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. In some ways, this is the same message that we should proclaim when we help people. Not withholding help, not using it as sort of a bludgeoning tool, but still the instruction is, we've helped you in this life but there is a worse thing coming that you need to avoid. Not just the physical suffering, but eternal suffering that needs to be avoided. How? Not by fixing things of the body, but by fixing things of the soul. Of course, it feels different coming from us, 
Because we get sucked into the pettiness of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? We get sucked into caring about the wrong things, prioritizing the wrong things, as they did. We are, in a word, hypocrites. Which makes this much more challenging for us. It worked coming from Jesus because he lived it all the time. But that's the challenge for us, right? That's the instruction for us then. Not that we can't proclaim the same message, but to make sure that we are living the message we proclaim. That we are removing, to the best of our ability, as much hypocrisy from our lives as we can, because that's what's going to give our teaching his kind of power. What's going to give our teaching the same kind of impact of Jesus' teaching is when we live it, as we're hopefully instructing others to live it. The invitation is his challenge. I don't know what your physical struggles are. I know you got them. Physical struggles, emotional struggles, familial struggles, relationship struggles. I know you got all sorts of stuff because you're a human. That's what we have in life. We invite you, if you need help, to come get help. Hopefully we can help you in some way, right? There's something we can do, hopefully, to alleviate your suffering. But at the same time, that's not our real challenge. We want to help you physically, but most of all, we want to help each other sin no more. Why? So that nothing worse will happen to us. That's what we're going for, I hope. 